we just understand that behavior change is a process and there are ups and downs and that we have to look at ourselves and understand that we make decisions by a variety of pathways and we have to consider that. It's really very helpful just to be real about that. Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. And mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. This episode is sponsored by DBT Path. My emotions were all over the map. And even though I knew in my heart that I was capable, bright, and had potential, I'd repeatedly do things that others would say was self-sabotaging. I didn't want to sabotage myself. I just truly didn't know how to manage my emotions. And believe me, I'd tried a lot of things. It wasn't until I learned dialectical behavior therapy, DBT skills, that I learned how to embrace my sensitivity and finally feel in control. Whether for you it's BPD, bipolar, anxiety, PTSD, or any other reason that you regularly experience intense emotions, you can create the life that you want, all online in a caring, non-judgmental community. Go to EmotionallySensitive.com now and join us. Learn DBT skills. Change your life. On this episode of Hope to Recharge, we welcome Atara Weisberger. Atara is a national board certified health and wellness coach trained at the Mayo Clinic, personal trainer, certified cancer recovery specialist, health educator, whole foods cook, mom of three young adults, and distance runner. She holds a master's degree in public affairs and teaches for the cancer support community at Holy Name Medical Center in northern New Jersey. Matana follows Atara on social media, was inspired by her work, and is proud to have her on the show. And now, the Hope to Recharge podcast with Matana. Mental illness and wellness and the, the interchange between them, we've created these artificial boundaries as if they're separate. And the reality is there's nothing in us that is separate per se. I got into health and wellness coaching specifically. So I did my health and wellness training at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Then I got board certified. So there's a national certifying board, which I would strongly recommend that people find coaches from there because that they're well-trained, well-qualified. So then I got my national board certification, but the focus, like how I got into the specialty is that I've always been an athlete. I've taught fitness classes. I started teaching in fitness studios when I was 16 and I've taught consistently just as a side gig. It was never my career. It was really just a side gig. And my first kind of career was in environmental science, which is not totally different. It's like global health versus individual health. So they are interconnected. And then once I started having kids, I really needed more flexibility. And so my husband at the time had said, why don't you become a personal trainer? Because you're so into fitness and you're so into health. And this is such a huge part of who you are that this seems and will give you flexibility. So I started out personal training people in their homes. And then the business kind of built and then I started, I built a small studio in my house. And then as the practice grew and I felt like it had to go to the next step, eventually several years down the line, I opened up a fitness studio for women called the Tribe Athletics and Fitness. And I opened it with a partner. We had a beautiful studio in Nutley, New Jersey, and it was a really special place because it was a place that my hushkafa, my philosophy was always that it's this is not a place to just exercise. It was a place for women literally and figuratively to let their hair down. And it was funny because you'd see women come in and rip their head coverings off, whatever, yeah, wow. let their hair down. And it was the way I trained my staff and the way I built the business is that this is as much a spiritual outlet as it is a physical outlet, as it is a communal outlet. So we opened the studio. I opened it with a partner who was and is one of my absolutely closest friends. Which is a miracle. Dave, a miracle. We, we had some rocky moments. But so a year into the process, her husband got transferred to Boca and they moved mm -hmm. down to Florida. So I ran the business by myself, which was an insane amount of work for about another three years, and then just had to really make some decisions because everyone else was getting healthy and well. And I was like driving myself into the ground, literally working 27, six, if that wow. was possible. Wow. So I said to myself, I have a choice. 
finding another partner isn't so simple. What piece, of, what piece of the tribe do I love the most? Like what really speaks to me? And as I went through life and as I went through difficult things and challenges and that ranged, but a lot of personal challenges, I said to myself, I really, the piece of this that means the most to me is to help women transform from the inside out. And I knew I didn't want to be a therapist. And I also love health and wellness. So what's the next step? So I did some research and I found health and wellness coaching. And I said, that's it. That's where I'm going. So I closed the studio and I knew that I would still be able to offer something to the women in the community. I started studying for the boards and I went from there. So it's recent, two and a half years. Like you're so, my mom also went to become a certified life coach. Her whole, our whole upbringing was that she was everybody's life coach without even being certified. And I remember asking, and for, for years, if you ask anyone about my mom, thousands of people came through our house and I'm saying thousands. Our house was very open and she's, she's an incredible person. She had an intuition. And I, I said to her, Ima, do you feel like you learned anything when you went through there? She's, yes, I learned the process. I knew that the, I, I understood. I, like the question wasn't like for me, the clarity came, but she said, but there was a process that I didn't know. And I wish I had it all these years when people would ask me life, like huge life decision things. And she said, there's just a process. And when you're stuck with the, when you stick to the process, it's just so much easier. And then you don't mm -hmm. get in the way you as the coach don't bring your stuff in the way when you're coaching somebody else. And that's the hardest part of coaching is this kind of constant vigilance that you have to have to not let who I am as a person and as a coach get in the way of something else. And when you ask in the context of what is coaching is in some ways, it's the exact opposite of being like you step out of the expert. So for many years, I was the expert. I was the health and fitness yes. expert. Tell me and how, and here's now, the recipe. And with the opposite, I'll ask the questions. You tell me how. And I always tell people, if the coach is telling you how, they're not a good coach. A coach right. needs to ask the right questions and the good questions that sometimes you don't even know the answer. Right. But if they're telling you the recipe, it's not real coaching. It could be that exactly. that's something else, but it's not coaching. Coaching is asking the right questions that you as a client have to go dig deep and ask an answer right. from a exactly. place of truth, the raw truth that sometimes we don't want to look at. Right. A hundred percent. And one of the things that I end up having to do is to re-educate my clients a little bit because they'll say to me, I see them getting a little frustrated with the question. They want someone to tell them what to do because they're so accustomed to that, especially with a medical model, which is what a lot of people are used to, is that they're used to being led like sheep in certain ways when it comes to their own health and wellness. Especially in the Orthodox community. We're taught, ask everything, right? Like it's some kind That's of- in America. In Israel too. Yeah. I feel like in Israel, they're more open to holistic things than they are. The holistic world, yes. But how much is the holistic world from the entire society in Israel? Maybe right. you have more holistic healers right. there, whatever. But the mindset- of an Israeli Orthodox person, let me ask the rabbi, my husband, my sister, my mm -hmm. mother, my grandmother, let me ask and get the question answered. It's not, oh, let me think about it. I wonder what I think. We've sort of punted on our, so to speak, own ability to think for ourselves. And it's funny when it will be like, just tell me what to do. And I always say to them, I like lean in and I'm like, how does that usually work out for you? When somebody tells you what to do, how does that work out? Do you do it? And then you stick with it consistently. And so someone tells you what to do and you just go off and do it and integrate it into your life. How has that worked for you? Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what to do. When it comes to, if, if I said to you, listen, Matana, is it better for you to have ice cream or broccoli if you're trying to get healthy? Nobody doesn't know the answer, but that doesn't change necessarily how we make decisions. And so coaching is really about what do you want? And if you want it, why do you want it? And then how are we going to get you there? And we set goals and there's accountability. And it's really a very proactive process is really that kind of the essence of it. I, I, I love that question that you said about the ice cream versus the broccoli. Tal Ben Shahar says, we have rhetorical awareness that no one wants to really answer because we know that we know the truth. 
we know that gratitude helps our mindset. We know that when we complain less, we see more positive. We know when we set boundaries, we, we have better relationships, but do we, it's rhetorical. Do we actually practice it? Or is Mm -hmm. it knowledge that we know is out there, but we don't practice it? There's so much involved in that because behaviors are complicated. We tend to make decisions emotionally. That's what every marketing expert knows. And so when we are making decisions, we're often taking this kind of dry, cerebral approach to it. That's where the shoulds come in is I really should do X, Y, Z for myself. I really should make some time for myself. I really should get to bed. I really should stop scrolling my social media and make sure that I get seven hours of sleep a night or whatever it is that we think. But that's very different than where our heart is or where our soul is drawing us towards. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes the process becomes a question of understanding that how we make decisions is complicated. And if we're real with that, it actually helps you make better decisions. You say to yourself, like, I understand that change is challenging and it takes time and it takes repetition. And that habit is a very deep kind of pathway in the brain. Once something Mm -hmm. becomes a habit, it's really challenging to, the goal is not to uproot the habit. That's why like when you go to a 12 step program, like Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, They're always calling you in recovery, even if you've been dry for 20 years. Why? Because that habit pattern is still there. It doesn't really go away. We're just trying to develop parallel tracks to that and then be aware that that track is over there, but we're going to choose this track instead. So if we just understand that behavior change is a process and there are ups and downs and that we have to look at ourselves and understand that we make decisions by a variety of pathways. And we have to consider that it's really very helpful just to be real about that. I'm curious about habits. You got me thinking. So you know how we we read all these books, the power of the habit, how long does it take to break out to change a habit? When does it become a part of you? I know positive psychology does talk about how to change a habit and how you do it small steps. And it's the consistency of it. Do you actually believe that we cannot change a habit? Oh, you can change your habits, but you can't get rid of the original pathway. It doesn't give me an example. Give me an example. And don't take recovery because I don't know recovery so well. So give me something easy for for me to grasp in terms of, let's say somebody's late, constantly late, always late. It's like a habit. I'm not on time. Isn't that like a habit or not? So So lateness is interesting because a lot of times, like that's a bit complicated because sometimes anxiety underlies why people are like they can't, it could be something that's more executive functioning related. That one's a little complicated because it's not necessarily just a habit. There are lots of pieces to why people might be. But that's the same thing with addiction. Addiction also, people become addicted to a substance because they are there, they have pain, they're running away from something. Yes, they could have addictive personality. But so what is a habit? Let's first define what is a habit that we're saying that it's that I'm curious to know, because this is fascinating. In positive psychology, they talk all about notice your habits, where can you change your habits? Where can you, where's your awareness of what's not working in order to change it? Totally. So So what is a habit? If I were standing on one foot, if I were to define a habit, it would Mm -hmm. be a behavior that's become automatic. Okay. That's what I would say that your brain just does it stops being what you do and it becomes who you are. Okay. So for example, in the morning, you don't have to think if I'm going to the bathroom and brushing my teeth. It's natural. I get up. If you're Orthodox and Jewish, you say, you go to the bathroom, you brush your teeth. And there's no way starting the morning a different way. There's just not happening. It doesn't happen. Okay. So that's a habit. I don't have to think about it and I don't have to make time for it because there's always going to be time even when I don't have time. Correct. And it's habitual to the extent that it doesn't take any mental real estate. So that's where we, that's where the art of this all is. Because when you need, when you're looking to change habits, so I'll give you a very concrete example from a Mm -hmm. client that I had yesterday. Okay. Okay. Very concrete. So she's exceptionally busy. She runs an organization. She has kids. She's, she's a busy lady. And she has a habit of 
when she is thinking through a hard problem or she has like something that she needs to do or she's having a difficult conversation or she has to have a difficult conversation. So she goes to the kitchen and eats. That's just her automatic pathway is that when she, and I I call it like food has become for her a thinking tool. Or comfort, no? So she's not really struggling with anxiety, which is why a lot of people turn to food as a comfort. She actually uses it, and we coined this yesterday, Mm -hmm. as a thinking tool, meaning that she needs to do something kinesthetically to help her kind of think. So some people use fidget tools, and some people like fidget toys, and Mm -hmm. the people get up and pace, or they people have different ways that it. So her pathway is that she goes to, and she makes healthy choices, but she's just mindlessly not as she's thinking through this problem. So one of the things that we talked about yesterday is, okay, you have the underlying need there is that, or the underlying premise there for her listening to her speak, which I reflected back to her is that when you have an intellectual problem that you're working on, it helps you to process that by doing something physically with your body Mm -hmm. that helps your mind to settle and engage and even organize itself. So she needs some kind of physical, tactile, kinesthetic input in order to help her think through a problem. So now that we know what kind of sits underneath that. So then the next question is, since you feel like your food habits are having a negative effect on in lots of different ways right now, blood pressure, family history of heart disease, diabetes, what else could you imagine be kinesthetic that would have that would replace it. And then knowing that every time you get to that crossroads, so for the next, however many times she's sitting at her desk, and she's got a hard thinking problem, she's got to be aware, it's like Viktor Frankl has that amazing quote, where he says, basically, that in between thought and action, I'm not quoting it exactly, but I'm paraphrasing that you have a moment in space and time where you hit a crossroad of choosing the old behavior or choosing the new behavior. So it requires a high level of awareness Awareness. because every time you get to that crossroad, you got to recognize it like on a dime. You have to say, oh, I feel that stress in my body. So I'll say to people, like when you feel, when you start to have that feeling, I need to go to the kitchen, what's going on for you in your body at that moment? What's the physical sensations that you have? Because if that'll help cue you in when you're at that crossroads. Mm -hmm. So next time she's sitting at her desk and she wants to go to the kitchen is check in and say, let's say her name is Sarah. Okay, Sarah, what's going on right now? Okay, I have this problem I have to solve. Normally I would do this. But this time I bought three fidget toys that are sitting on my desk and I'm going to get up and pace and play with my fidget toy and see if that works or chew on a straw or whatever works, whatever, chew on ice, whatever we've decided that she's going to do. But she has a split second. And every time you choose to go the new direction, you deepen those synapses in the brain. And these get a little, the old pattern weakens. So it's the key is constant and consistent repetition towards the new behavior. Does that mean that those old pathways are going to go away? No, but it's like letting grass grow over those railroad tracks. Those tracks are still there, but it looks old and it looks unused and it's not so appealing anymore. And you really don't want to go that way. It looks much more interesting now to go that new shiny track way. Oh, wow. That's cool. That one looks like fast and it's high speed and There's no grass and weeds growing over it. So it's not that those tracks on the left of the old habit disappear, but they're just not appealing anymore. And they don't draw you the way that new smooth track draws you. And that's the direction that you want to go. I'm a visual person. That is so fascinating to me because I, from all the books I read about creating new habits, I was sure that the, that basically the old habits is no longer a habit and you're just making a new neural pathway for your behavior. And that is your habit. And you're not even, it doesn't even exist even during hard times to even think to go to the other habit, the old habit. Have you ever had that experience of being developing a new habit that's in lieu of an old habit and never being tempted by the old habit? Have you had that experience? No, but that's so sad. Why? Because that means that we can't change. I guess that's what the recovery world is saying. Once you're like, 
once one is an addict, always an addict, you just have to start a new pathway of life that it no longer is calling you. And there, there's fulfillment elsewhere and you don't go there, but it's always going to be there. That habit is always going to be there. And I would hope that our brain is so complex that it could rewire itself, literally re- rewire itself. It does itself. rewire itself. It does. It lets the grass grow over the track. So it's no longer exciting. It's no longer, it's no longer. You pull the plug on it a little bit. So then why do we sometimes think about it or gravitate to it? Why is that? Because that's our insecurities and the garbage and everything. When we don't do the work 100%, it's easy to go back to the old track because it's cozy and what we know. Is that what it is? And those pathways are there. So every habit that we have developed for a reason, it was either to protect us, either from feeling something that we didn't want to feel mm-hmm. or experiencing something that we couldn't handle mm-hmm. or we thought we couldn't handle. Mm-hmm. It's usually just that right. we think we can't handle it. It's right. not usually that we can't handle it, but every habit that we have has developed for a reason. So the first time that you turn to food as a comfort, for example, and I'm sorry that I keep using those, but those are the examples. Please the use it because that's exactly me. And I need to hear this right now. Yeah. So, so let's do it on me. Let's do, I love doing live practices. So okay. for me, I wake up, I'm, I'm so busy in the morning. I don't, I do fruit. I try to do fruit till noon. And sometimes it's only, it's a few sips of coffee because I cannot start my day without coffee. I have one coffee throughout the day and it sits on my counter and everybody knows the coffee doesn't Guilty. move. One, one, it's yep. you. And I usually don't take the last, but so I have that. And if I have a chance for a half an avocado or a half a banana or whatever, that's it. Then mm-hmm. comes 2.30 literally 2.30. I didn't even realize that I didn't eat anything and I'm starving. Now I'm running already. Like the time, like the day is almost over because soon it's carpool and pick up time and you have to start the next half of the day because my younger kids are coming home. Right. So what do I do? I'm anxious because I'm hang- hungry. I love food, love food. I go and I grab the easiest toxic food that's on my countertop, which is usually a cake, a rugula or a box of rugula. <laughs> And I just go. And mm. then I have, okay, I'm not starving. I'm not shaking, physically shaking from hunger. And then I wait till dinner. And when we eat dinner, I eat dinner. And that's, and in between the like 2.33 until dinner, a lot of moments of just grabbing what's on the go because I don't make time to just sit down and eat. I love food. Did I say that? And that will help you. Your love of food can actually help you make. So let me back up for a second. What about that would you like to change? Funny, because once I went to a nutritionist, I said, do not take away my love to food. Don't you dare. The love is so strong. I don't want to live without that love because it right? gives me so much joy. It, it, I love preparing it. I love eating it. I love seeing people eat it. It just, and I don't even know why. I really don't know why, but I love food. What about it? Do I want, I want to change my health. I don't want to eat margarine that's in a bakery cake. There's a difference between even eating cake that I made at home versus something from the store that's completely toxic. And Mm I'm putting it into my body. I'm working really hard to keep my mind, and this is what we're here to talk about, to keep my mind healthy. And I know the healthier I eat, the more I'm stable with my anxiety, with my moods, with my tiredness, with my fatigue, with my reactions, with my anger management, if I'm frustrated with something. Food is huge. So I would think that it's my priority. When I was recovering years ago, I was not going near anything that was sugar, caffeine. It was a no-brainer because I was on survival. And I knew how fast I reacted by even taking a sip of decaf or sugar or any or chocolate, anything like that was terrible. So I stuck right. to very healthy. So now that I'm okay, why wouldn't I not know how important it is and stick to it? Yeah, I have a very healthy dinner. My dinners at home are usually very healthy, really healthy. A salad, a soup, chicken, a fish. But what's in between? What happens there? What, where do I mm-hmm. get lost? What would I want to change to choose the right thing? I want to choose not a piece of cake. A piece of cake should be on the weekend as a treat. So what piece is missing from what do you think is between what in your mind and in your heart? It sounds like it's not just in your mind, in your heart also. This is what you believe in. This is what you want others to do. 
This is what you know is important for your mental health, for your physical health. And you have a love of food, which is a very useful tool in all this. That you can use to help you. You said one thing that I think is very important in all of this, which is that you even like the preparation of it. So you don't even have that barrier of people who are uncomfortable in the kitchen. My kitchen is my therapy. And I go there when I'm stressed. I go to my kitchen and I start making. Don't take my kitchen away from me. And don't take my products away from me. Just don't. What I think it is, I always say healthy food is just not as good as not healthy food. And I always say, why Mm. can't a salad taste as good as a cheesecake? Why? Like, why? You don't enjoy healthy foods as much. You enjoy it only in the evening, not in the afternoon for some reason. Like with the family time, I'm totally okay with it. And I enjoy, but in the afternoon, it's just not, I feel like maybe it's a joy. It's a real joy. I enjoy in the evening to eat healthy because my mind is saying, oh, you're feeding your family healthy. And we have a family dinner Mm. every single night together, every single night. But in the afternoon, I want to treat, I want, I always, it's, it's awful, but I call it a body orgasm. Like that I can literally go into a deep joy when I'm drinking like a very good milkshake or biting into a cheesecake. I have a moment of gratitude every single bite and it, and I just feel high on life. So that's hard to walk away from. I don't want to. That's why I said, don't take away my joy of that enjoyment. But give me lettuce, give me broccoli, only if it's long stemmed, perfectly done. I don't like anything without cheese. Pasta is delicious. Don't give me Mm -hmm. whole wheat pasta. Don't. Like there's some things. And I know pasta is poison. So you have some interesting pieces here because you, for you, nurturing your family is the joy of the evening meal. Mm -hmm. That there's a piece of you that feels you feel good about it because that meal is speaking to higher values of yours, which is that you really, you like to nurture through food. It sounds like you like to nurture through food. Yes. And the question is, you're good at nurturing others through food. What keeps you from nurturing yourself that way? Oh, I think I'm nurturing myself by giving me the unhealthy food, by forgiving. I actually say to myself, forgive yourself, enjoy, just enjoy this bite of cheesecake, enjoy this delicious pizza, enjoy the French fries. This is life. Enjoy it. Don't give me a salad. And food is supposed to be a pleasure. If it wasn't supposed to be, God would have, you know, given us a pill or he would have made everything taste like tree bark, or he would have like, Food is, it's why we say a bracha. I don't know if you can say a bracha on food that you hate. I'm not an expert in Jewish law, but it would be a question. Okay, you get nourishment from it. So I guess you're saying it on that. But it's interesting what, because like you're coming from that place. I'm I'm curious how you feel about this. I'm going to ask, I'm going to throw something out to you. You're going to reflect back what you think about. What if you didn't think of it as taking away? What if you just thought of it as adding to in terms of your food? So instead of thinking that the health changes that you need to make are about taking foods that you love away, what about thinking of it as adding foods in, in addition to that are healthful for you? Meaning that you don't think of it as I'm taking away my milkshake in the afternoon. You can't have milkshakes anymore. You have a level of Hana'a from it that is a full body and soul experience. Literally. And that's hard to replace. So you are very clear with your nutrition. I don't want you to take my food away. No, the joy of food. The joy of The joy, yeah. And you don't feel that same from lettuce. No. But you also have a sense that by afternoon, your body is saying to you, Hey, I'm not doing so great. I don't feel so well. I'm anxious because you haven't fed me properly. I don't, I'm starving, like literally starving. You forgot about me over here. And so it's, it makes sense that your afternoon cravings would be really strong. That makes sense to me because your body is trying to talk to you. And it gets louder and louder until you give it some attention. So the question, is there a possibility of thinking of it in terms of adding in instead of taking away? So for example, saying, I I have the cake, make sure you have cut up fruit in the fridge to eat. Make sure you have a piece of salmon or sushi or something like that. I don't know if sushi is healthy or not. I'm not sure. But uh, make sure... 
that before you take that piece of cake on the go, make sure, and don't tell me you don't have time, make sure that there is prepare ahead, just like you do for everything else, just like you make sure that your kids have food and snack for school. So don't give me excuses, I don't have time. So make sure that you end your meetings 10 minutes before and make sure you have something healthy before you take the cake. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. How does that sit for you though? Definitely. It was interesting to watch you back into your back into how to do that. Like you just backed yourself. You just dialed your schedule back. I watched you thinking. So what you're doing. No, I I was thinking of excuses. Exactly. Making the plan because I'm Mm -hmm. like no excuses. You want it? You make it no excuses. Okay. So I knew I'm going to say to myself, okay, but I don't have time to make a salad. Okay. So Mm -hmm. make time to make the salad or buy a salad or like you spend buy an acai bowl. Like Mm -hmm. you you spend money on many things. So spend money on nurturing yourself and making sure that you have it. Right. And catching it before your body is freaking out on you for ignoring it Right. right before that. But so then what you've done now is you framed the looking at the how to, meaning that now you can say to yourself, okay, if this is something that sits okay with me, this is an interesting idea. I could think about this. It doesn't scare me because I don't have to give up my pleasure foods, but I can also nurture my body and have those pleasure foods at the same time. Now, how do I make that practical? So there are other changes you've had to make. And when you've had to make other hard changes, so for example, when you were in your recovery phase and it was just so clear to you that this was your life on the line. Literally, it was a panic Literally. attack or a sip of a coffee. Which one do right. I rather? I rather starve from no coffee. But in this case, it's that it's almost the opposite. You have such visceral pleasure from it and no kind of negative kickbacks. Instead, besides the knowledge and knowing toxic food, is not good for you. The knowledge, it's the theory because we don't have the reaction. So used to be certain chocolates would give me migraines. So it was an easy thing. Okay, you'll eat that chocolate, you're going to get a migraine. So I don't have that, oh, you eat this cake, you're going to see the outcome right away. You won't. You'll see the positive outcome, how good you feel when you eat that cake. And physiologically, there's a lot of research Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about, forgiveness. Self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others. Essential for healing. If you want to work one-on-one with me in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's a custom-made program for you, one-on-one with me. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. And physiologically, there's a lot of research that discusses the actual chemical release in the brain of a host of neurotransmitters when we eat certain foods, the high sugar, the high fat foods, the high salt foods, that there is it's really like a dopamine dump totally. in the brain. Yeah. Totally. And I feel Oxytocin, it. Oxytocin, dopamine, And I serotonin. feel it. I yeah. really feel it. And right? I love it. It's like right? watching a sunset and you're eating cheesecake. So it's important to work with what you know about yourself. So there, there's the piece that you nurture through food. You enjoy being in the kitchen. It's a happy place for you. It's a comfortable space for you. So for you to have to spend a few extra minutes making sure you have something for the next day, for you isn't like a painful concept because the kitchen is a space, at least it's a space that you've learned to nurture others. Yes. No, I love my kitchen. I love making. I love creating. I love the aromas. I I love everything about it. How can you harness that to connect your? I make. I know, know, but I make the food that's not healthy. I'll make the cook the challah that's not healthy. I'll make the all the dips that are oily and greasy. 
I'll make also some healthy ones, but don't take away that unhealthiness from me because there's such a joy of it. There's just, and maybe I, I keep on thinking about my mom. I, she went, she became super healthy. I think it was 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. Only spelt, no nightshade vegetables. I don't even know what that means. No sugar. What else does she do? Very little gluten. She's super healthy. She walks every day. And I'm like, Ema, don't you just want to go to a restaurant and eat anything on the menu without thinking, does this align with me? She's no, it doesn't even. And she's also very, she entertains a lot. She she cooks a lot. She, she doesn't mind cooking something that she won't eat. And mm -hmm. I don't understand that. And I always say, Ema, if I ever, I don't want to be like you because it just, life is so boring. And she's like, I don't even think about it. But if someone say, take the magic pill and become like Ema, I wouldn't want it because it's going to take away from my joys. And that's super important to you. That super. joyfulness is yeah. super important to you. And it's not. So where do you see the conflict for you? Meaning that I hear. So the knowledge. No. So yeah. So what I would, what my huge thing is, and I think for the community that's listening, we know as mental health advocates and mental health warriors that whatever we put in our mouth affects our well-being, period, yes. end of story. It just does. And if I'm such a mental health advocate and I will do my gratitude and my meditation and my walking and my boundaries and my forgiveness, I'll do everything else. But when it comes to food, I'm like, ah, I'm going to trick the system on this one. Right. If I'm so passionate about mental health and I know that they're related and you're going to tell us soon how they're related. We went a little bit off topic, but it's, I think it's important because this is the process that you work with your clients, how to right. understand where their hurdles are and what's what belief do they want to change in them that's not serving them anymore and Correct. what ha what habits to get a healthier habit versus the unhealthy habit and to work towards a, a healthier state of mind and being and healthiness and learn long-term living right that's the right. end of the and i don't know why i'm not i don't know why i would not be willing to give up this joy for long-term mental health and physical health. You th I think you've articulated the, the sticking point for you, which is that from what you've described to me, and you'll let me know if I'm not, if I'm not reflecting this accurately, what you've described to me is you get a mental health boost from the way you're eating. You're not only yeah. not paying for it, you're benefiting from it from a mental health perspective. You're describing a level of joy, neurotransmitter kickback that's yeah. so potent for you that it seems to actually promote your mental health in a way. I don't know how your body feels about it. I know long-term, long-term, it can't be helped. Like, it's like a shot of whiskey. Like, mm -hmm. right now I'll feel good, but how if I take constant shot of whiskey, how am I going to feel? Okay, maybe it's not such a good example. But anything that's well, long-term toxic... Is it going to benefit me or not? Maybe right now it's calming me down. It's like a, it's like a medicine, like a clonopin. Right. The clonopin, right. when I was on clonopin, it saved my life, literally saved my life from suicide, saved my life, calmed me down, whatever. After a while, it was toxic for me. And I'm talking all about me. And I realized I'm in a fog. I don't have that higher ability to think, to, to work with what I had. So I said, okay, what am I choosing? I have to choose them. Do I right. want to withdraw from the long-term toxic uh, pill that I'm putting in or, and fight the anxiety naturally? Or do I want to just stay in the state of like feeling good? Mm -hmm. Okay, not good. Okay, and no panic attacks and, and be average. Mm -hmm. I know long-term the way I'm eating in the afternoon. My, my health habits are not healthy for long-term. Mm -hmm. But okay. I do get that instant, like it's like a clonopin when I have a, a panic attack. Oh, okay. The anxiety's gone. I'm feeling good. Oh, right. I'm starving. Oh, that cake is so good. That was awesome. Does it make me feel energetic at the end of the day? Probably not. Probably right. not. It can't. Right. It's So you know that in the long run, you're going to have to make some changes. I want to. I don't know. I you want, want to. to. I want, want to. I know I want to. I know that the sugars, the flour, all this stuff is cannot be good for me. Cannot. 
I know it's not right, but I enjoy it's like, it's, I guess it's very similar to alcohol. I know alcohol is not good. I don't drink Mm -hmm. alcohol. So I don't, I, I, for me, it's excellent because it puts me to sleep within a second. But for people that enjoy alcohol, they're like, oh, this is so good, but this can't be a long-term solution. So what would be one step that you can imagine taking that would so when you came off clonopin, for example, you don't just go cold, you don't just go oh. titrate exactly, right. you come off it slowly. So, if we come into habits, if we know that the key to habit is consistency, so you want to choose a behavior mm. when it comes to, for example, when it comes to making better change, making better choices for your health, for your mm. mental health, for your physical health. So, we know that whatever you choose to do should be small enough that you can commit to it and you can do it consistently. Mm -hmm. So that means you don't have to try something every single day, but you have to try it every Monday, for example. Okay. That's easy. That's easy. You know what I'm saying? So what would be a step that you could take that doesn't yank the the foods out of your system, just like coming off Clonopin all at once is what is one small proactive step that you can take to start moving you in the direction you want to go that you can keep to. You can be consistent about. So I once did drink a cup of water before you take a slice of cake of anything. That's easy. Let's just drink water before you do anything. Just drink water. And I really noticed that I was choosing healthier habits. I think my, I would love to say cake only on the weekend. I would love to, but I think that's too big. I think that's too big. I would say if you want cake, eat one healthy food before. Great. Have a fruit, have a few almonds. Just break that pattern of reaching out right away. Even if it's three grapes, even if it's uh, three almonds, have something ready and just make sure that before you grab the on the go, you have, you nurture yourself also. I love that. That's great is nurture yourself. Like before you, you have that, again, you have that moment, right? You have that moment where you're going to reach. You have that moment of awareness between when you have that sensation or the urge or the thought or the whatever. And you're like, ah, just a slight pivot just for a minute. That's what you're doing. You're taking a slight pivot and you're going to grab something else, but the cake is there. I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. You're going to just pivot for a second first to get back into it. Yeah. I think uh, it's funny because as I'm thinking about it, this is a little bit uh, controversial and probably people that are listening to this, if they're orthodox, they might not like what I'm saying. But my husband was telling me that he was teaching our sons when they were becoming older, that how do you control your your urges and desire? Don't say you're not getting it. Don't say, oh, right. I, I'm feeling, oh my God, I, I, I want to masturbate now. You just say 30 seconds. I'm waiting 30 seconds. And he said that that goes with, it's extreme with uh, sexual desire, that mm-hmm. impulse. And he says that with the orthodox mindset, how to control your impulses, it could be also with two seconds, three seconds at a time, 30 seconds, and just add a second or two each time. And people became like radically different. And he said, I don't want to teach my son, you can't ever do it all the time. Because then it's like you taking food away from me and saying, you'll never have ice cream, you'll never have cake, you'll never have pizza, you'll never have these things. And I'm like, okay, that's awful. Who wants that life? But if you say to me, just wait a little bit, replace it with something right before. Just right bridge the gap a little bit. And that's how you control urges in general, impulsivity. Right. It's interesting that you're saying that because I thank God I'm finishing up the first draft of a book that I'm co-writing with somebody from Israel. And and he had just shared with me this morning, something from who talks about that the worst thing you can do when you have an urge for something that you think is quote unquote bad or not good, the worst thing that you can do is try and stuff it with, you mean stuff it, like make it go away, like force the thought to go, let's say whatever it is, if it's something sexual or if it's whatever it is that you want to do and it's not, even if something simple of like speaking something badly about somebody, right? So instead of shoving that thought away. I'm so bad. How could I have that thought? Make Mm -hmm. it go away. Push it out of your mind. He Mm -hmm. says that is basically the fast track to disconnection from ourselves and a certain level of misery. Instead, you want to look inside yourself and say, what is it that is driving that? So now in the case of teenage boys, for example, in sexuality, it's just, it's not always very deep. That's what they want to do. Exactly. It's not that complicated, you know, but that idea of trying to shove away 
away something that's calling to you. So let's say, for example, with, you know, food and your cake or your milkshakes or whatever is like trying to just shove that desire away is going to make matters worse. Instead, Mm -hmm. what does that mean to me? What do I get out of that? Why is that important to me? Mm -hmm. And what can I piggyback on that to make better decisions for myself, which is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, I think in the Orthodox world, we have things with our boundaries very set into place and we're not aware that it's really teaching us how to to really have uh, a non-reflex reaction, like with kosher, with fasting, with Shabbos. Like we have certain things with Nida. We have all these things that make us say, okay, right now you can't, but you will have it maybe a different time. Kosher is, is not. Like I will never have a cheeseburger. You'll have a burger and you can have cheese six hours later or seven hours, whatever you choose. But there's certain boundaries that, we teach ourselves that not everything is okay all the time. And I think to me, that's one of the, I was not raised religiously and I didn't become observant until my late twenties. And one of the things that struck me that really was part of my process of becoming religious was both the human insight, the insight into human nature that the Torah Mm -hmm. had, which Mm -hmm. was unlike anything I had ever seen in the secular world, so to speak. And it was also the balance of things. I'm very much as a person, I'm very much about balance. I think that idea that sometimes all the physical pleasures are available to us, but we're also supposed to have boundaries and control over ourselves. Mm -hmm. Both are necessary. You need pleasure and you need boundaries. I think that's something that has gotten very confused in the world mm-hmm. is this concept of boundaries yeah. are bad. Somehow yeah. saying no is bad, that it, it's just about do whatever you feel. And that is a bit dangerous because as a person, you really only grow in the context of certain limitations whatever they are, and learning how to manage those limitations. And I think one of the beauties of Judaism is this idea that we're not aesthetics. We don't profess that you should separate yourself from the physical body. We don't say the physical body is bad. The opposite, we say it's holy and it's beautiful and it's a Kaylee for it's a vessel for God. And at the same time, have an animal, have some control, have some ability to wait. And that the, the holistic positive psychology world, the more and more are taking to this intermittent fasting, a cold, ice cold showers and baths hmm. and stuff like that. All these things that are only water for a week or something like that. They're testing their boundaries and their silence, let's say meditation, prayer, all these things are suddenly, oh, maybe it is good. So maybe it does. Never think about it. it. Look up. Everybody's doing the extremes of testing their limitations to saying no hmm. to something that they want. So interesting. Wim Hof with so the ice bath, but not everything comfortable is good. Like test test your limitation. Hmm. Everybody's into the intermittent fasting. Oh my! I remember years ago someone said you're a woman and they let you fast. Almost every woman out there is doing uh, once a week fasting because it's healthy. The like the cleansing of the body, and they're proud if they do three day fasting. You know what I'm saying? So by right. us, it was part of, it's in our, in our, not in culture, in our religion, it was certain things were set in stone that this is good for a human being to have boundaries. Right. When you can eat, what can you eat? And I, I often asked my husband, I said, do you think God really cares X, Y, Z? He really doesn't care about the cheeseburger. He cares that you have boundaries. He cares that there's certain things that you just have to say no to and be okay with that. And, that's and that it. you can have a certain level of self-control. Yeah, 100%. Sure. It's interesting. So I want to, before we, we wrap up, I want you to give me your, a little bit of an insight for the audience about how important it is to really choose body movement when we're going through depression and anxiety or any mental illness. Like how important body movement and how through neuroscience, it's real. It's not just this made up thing that really, yeah. it really helps the chemicals in our brain. And if you, and I say this often, if you're taking medication for 30 days to see how you feel, start walking for 30 days and see how you feel. And the same thing with food. Give us a little bit of a of an overall picture of how it affects our brain and our well being and our mental. Oh my gosh, there's so much I know to say about so this. Say, it's say. like uh, it's like you just open the dam. You I know? know, I know. So bring it on as much as you could say, because really, I think this is the the crucial point 
first of all, I, I was I, I loved seeing how you work and your energy and your calmness and the awareness. So it's very good that my audience could see how you work. But I want them to also understand how our mental health is so connected to our food and our body movement. So let me start by saying if I like had, I have a lot of ways that I would love to change the medical system. But one of the ones that I feel like I wish I could implement yesterday is that before any psychiatrist writes a prescription for kind of psychiatric medication, that the first requirement is that they write a prescription for exercise, and they hand a patient, uh, a Fitbit, or they hand them, uh, or you, for the cost of a prescription, you can get one subsidized by your insurance company, and you have to move for 30 minutes a day. And it doesn't have to be in a gym, and it doesn't, you have to get your body moving. So there are a couple pieces to this. One is that from a physiological perspective, from a research science perspective, there you spike the good hormones in your body. So it increases dopamine, it increases serotonin. But more than that is that it burns off adrenaline, which Mm -hmm. is a huge component, like exercise physically burns off the adrenaline, which is Mm -hmm. a byproduct of anxiety. And the stress hormone of cortisol, which not only makes you feel stressed out. It lowers cortisol, exercises lowers cortisol. Cortisol is implicated in weight gain, makes it very hard to lose weight, particularly around the middle part of the body, which is the more dangerous part of the body for people to carry weight in. But it also is in terms of blood sugar. So people who are having, people who have consistently high cortisol levels, either from a lack of sleep or consistent high stress, the body is not meant to hold the level of stress that most of us do over such a long period of time. And so the exercise brings down the cortisol levels, it burns off the adrenaline, and at the same time, it raises the exact same levels of the neurotransmitters that most of us would take antidepressants for the SSRIs, the SNRIs, whether it's working on norepinephrine or serotonin or what have. So from a physiological perspective, it's a no brainer. So now I'm, by the way, I just want to preface this by saying I'm now stepping out of my coaching role and into my expert role. Good, 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 good. good. My coach always says I have two hats. Tell me which one you want me to wear now. It's the coaching or the consultant. Tell me which one you want me to wear now and I'll shift between them. So now Atara is the, the health consultant. But I want, Atara, I want, I'm going to challenge you for a second, just because, Please. not because I don't believe different, because I think yeah, it's I important. It. So when I was so depleted, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't shower on my own. And everyone was telling me, a psychiatrist, which I, I, I think my recovery is thanks to him because he told me, you can take medicine, but if you want to, you have to do yoga, exercise, meditation, and watch your food. What psychiatrist says that? Almost none. Almost none. none. And he's a Correct. Park Avenue top psychiatrist, $600 an hour. And he said, yes, he's, he saves lives. And he said to me, you can numb the symptom, but do you want to heal? If you want to heal, this is how you need to heal. You could do it. It'll be easier with medication because your symptoms are high now, but once your symptoms get lower, increase your yoga, your meditation, your exercise. So I, I couldn't even get to him. I was like walked to him. So everybody said, okay, do exercise. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I cannot talk. How am I walking down the street? What are you saying? I can't walk, stand in my shower. So I knew that exercise is going to help me, but I didn't have the energy because I was depleted. I couldn't mm-hmm. get out of bed. So what would you tell someone that was in my state? And I have a lot of people telling me that they're in that state. So how do they move forward without the medication? I'm not saying that they should move forward without it. Like I, d- I just think that It's not always for it to be the only line of defense, which is what it often is a mistake. So it could be that in, if someone's in an acute phase of depression or an acute phase of panic or anxiety, that the medication will help them. It's just the same thing they say about therapy, like therapy and medication together are more effective than either one alone. So that's because sometimes you need the medicine just to be able to have a conversation And to be able to not only get out of bed and go to therapy, but to make therapy productive. If somebody's brain is just in crisis, you you need to, if some, it's like if somebody comes into the emergency room and they're bleeding profusely, you're not like, you know what, let's talk about your diet and exercise. No, I'm sorry. You triage that person first, take care of, you stop the bleeding, you do what you need to do. 
And then you can talk long-term, right. hey, how'd you end up in that situation? Right. You know, Maybe right. you shouldn't engage in knife fights in the future right. or whatever. Right. Let's right. talk to the social worker. So I'm for sure not suggesting there is absolutely a place for it. There are people in my family whose lives were also saved by medication, literally. And so I think that there's a place for it and in an acute phase for sure. I don't maybe think we was it that time. Maybe yeah. we're waiting too long to get to the psychiatrist, and we're already at rock bottom. Maybe if we started, maybe if mm. I started exercise two months before, I wouldn't get to the psychiatrist in the state that I was, which was rock bottom. Maybe if I caught right. myself before, and someone said to me, oh, "Go on a walk. Go force yourself. Go on a walk. Go to the beach and walk along the boardwalk. Yes. Do some exercise. Maybe I wouldn't end up at the psychiatrist not swallowing, not eating, not getting out of bed. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that it just requires us knowing that this is a crucial piece at any stage. Okay. Right. Maybe not the acute stage, but anytime there's never a time. If you can find me somebody, anybody, who told me that they felt worse after they took a walk. Find me one person who said, I felt worse than when I started. Right. Or that workout, I really wish I hadn't worked. I don't think I've ever had anybody, no matter how much they complain about how much they hate exercise, who didn't feel at least good about the fact that they did exercise yeah, yeah. at the end and yeah. feel accomplished and feel whatever. There is no downside. There are no negative side effects to working out right. or to movement. It doesn't have to be exercise, just movement. It can be walking. It can be gardening. It can be shoveling snow. It can be, I don't know, running up and down your stairs. It can be dancing in your living room. It doesn't make any difference. The body is designed to move. And when the body doesn't move, the mind, like when you think about it, your mind can only hold so much stress. So there's a really amazing book that it's, especially for people who have gone through trauma. And if people haven't read it, I strongly encourage them to read it. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's about what happens Fantastic when book. the brain can't hold the trauma, it dumps it into the mind. So the way to start healing that, this is a Harvard professor, super educated, like expert in his field on yeah. mental health. And he yeah. says that really that this is so if you want to heal the mind from trauma, you have to start with the body because mm -hmm. that's where it gets stored. It's so a it, great book. And also yeah. it's great because it explains how, why, when we have certain pain in our body, it's not, oh, wait, I didn't hurt my foot. Why is it hurting? understanding why is the hurt, the, the pain coming to my foot right. and what's the relationship between the mind and the foot or migraines or stomach issues, the body keeps the score. It's a fascinating yep. book. Yeah, it is. It's wonderful. It's really, I've passed it on to a number of clients. And then in terms of the food piece, so this is something that I think a lot of people don't know. Those great neurotransmitters that we all need more of, the serotonins and norepinephrine, oxytocin, most, the, the vast majority, I think the number is 80% of those neurotransmitters are produced in your gut. They're not produced in your brain. They're produced in the intestinal tract. And when your microbiome is off because of poor diet quality, you impact the level of neurotransmitters that your body can produce. Most people think that they come from the brain and they don't, they come from the gut. So the gut is often called like the second immune system because most of your immunity, the white blood cells, most of your immunity also comes from your gut. So gut health is key to physical and mental health. It's really, that's an essential piece. So eating a low fiber diet, fiber is very helpful for gut health. Probiotics are great. You can take them for sure, but really having a, a plant-based, well-rounded, healthful whole grain vegetable and legume based diet is essential for good gut health and when we don't eat like that we literally change the brain chemicals that we walk around with so literally, literally you literally change your brain chemistry it's wow. a direct link it's not even like this isn't even question this isn't i'm not telling you something that's controversial this is this yet is, no but yet people will run and take medication in order to feel better. That's why you and I do what we do because we're part of the process of start. It's going to change. It has to change. The, the system that we have now is failing miserably. 33% of America is pre-diabetic. 33%, 80% of them don't know it. It's not a joke. We're not getting healthier. We're getting heavier. We're getting sicker. 
it's not a joke. It's going to change. And I see I am fortunate to work with Holy Name Medical Center here in New Jersey. And I'm fortunate to work with the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and their integrative medicine program. And there are like, they're starting this is starting individualized medicine, things that are geared for people more holistically. There are so many young tech companies coming online and entering into the health and wellness space because they can provide services. The older medical establishment doesn't have the flexibility to just turn on a dime. They don't know the agility like these smaller tech companies do. It's going to change whether it's wearables or it's the way that we approach more of a health, trying to keep people healthy, as opposed to just treating them when they're sick, that has to change because the current model isn't working and people aren't responding to it. Yeah. But I so believe what you're saying, but at the same time, I'm saying, okay, I'll eat fruits and vegetables and I'll change that. But anyway, anything that's coming into my house is full of toxic sprays and all kinds of chemicals. So I'm full of chemicals anyway. If I live in 2021, I'm full of chemicals just by existing. Our water, our vegetables, how many chemicals are in our vegetables? So in order to live, let's say an organic life, I need three salaries to live an organic life or live on a farm somewhere and grow my own fruits and vegetables. But every box of cereal, I don't care if it's whole grain or whatever, they have chemicals in them. So aren't we already doomed? No, not no. Enough. Okay, so tell me. Because I want to hear this because I sometimes say, okay, I'm already doomed no matter what. Even the brown, the, even the brown, the brown rice that I'm, eat, that I'm eating is not really healthy brown rice. So I'm fooling myself. What do you think? So I like to think of it this way, that everybody's body has a threshold. We don't know what that threshold is, but everybody's body has a threshold where they cross over from wellness to illness. And anything you can do to lower that threshold, it's saying if I'm not going to do all 613 commandments, I'm not going to do any of them. Because if I can't do it perfectly. A lot of people say that. I just had a whole conversation about the mindset of, oh, I don't keep this, so I won't keep Shabbos, or I won't be kosher. Or versus say, I try, I don't know where I'm going to do, where I'm going to succeed with everything, but I try. Okay. Right. I like that. I like that. So you do the best you can with what you have. You have to do, that's your It's more than that. It's more than that. It's that anything you can do to lower if you picture a physical threshold. So if it if you've got ceiling here and the water is coming up and you've got whatever little space of oxygen right up at the top. So you're breathing whatever is left up there at some point that gap is going to completely close and you cross over from wellness into illness. So anything you can do to lower that, lower the, like, yeah, it's like that. It's, but you want to keep the pressure as low as you can. Right. So we, there's, there are a lot of things that we can't control. Mm -hmm. So the air that you breathe, you can't control. We live in the New York area. We live in the tri-state area. You can't control that, but you can control what comes into your house. And it's not really the case if you shop smart. So for example, there's a list called the dirty dozen and the clean 15. So the clean 15 are the foods that have the least amount of pesticide residue on them. The least amount have been treated with the least amount of chemicals, usually because they're the easiest to grow. So for example, broccoli and cauliflower are on the clean 15, which means that if you're on a budget and the dirty dozen are the 12 produce items that have the highest pesticide residue. Like peppers, stuff like right. that, right? Cucumber. Chin skinned. Right. It's usually okay. the thin skinned okay. produce. Okay. So those, if you have to make choices, those are the ones that are worth buying organic. The clean 15 are not necessarily worth buying organic if you're on a budget. Things like brown rice and chickpeas and lentils and nuts and seeds are some of the best foods in the world out there. And they're also some of the cheapest. So no need to go organic. They're not. It's good if you do, but there are issues with organic rice too. Depends on where, especially if it's grown in China, but that's another matter. That's a whole other discussion. That's from my environmental side, but there are ways that you can do it. Really the healthiest foods, like when you think about and meats, so organic meat is expensive, but if we reduce the amount, and I'm a meat eater, don't get me wrong, but if we reduce the amount of meat we eat, improve the quality of it and eat more of the plant-based food. You mean it's also not only meat, chicken and fish. Fish is, those are the most expensive foods, especially Mm -hmm. in the kosher world. Cheese, meat, 
fish. Chicken is relatively cheap in America, less so in Israel. Right. But but those foods, if we reduce the amount of those we eat, that already cuts a big amount from our budget in terms of how much we're spending. And if we can sometimes replace those with proteins that are plant-based, whether it's edamame or it's chickpeas or lentils or tofu or any of those products, which are very inexpensive, especially if you buy them dried, and then you pair them with vegetables and whole grains, which are also not expensive, then you've done your, you, you come out okay budget-wise and you've done your gut and your brain an enormous service. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I would love to have you back again to speak about Thanks. how to run a, a family. Like mm-hmm. I know that when, when parents say eat only organic, their kids are the ones that are always running to the neighbors to eat all the candies and everything there. And and when they are like graduating into their own family, how they're like, I'm not eating organic anymore. I'm not eating brown rice anymore. Give me the real food. So I want the relationship. I want to understand the balance between being a role model and saying, this is what we do in our house. This is healthy. And I'm doing it because it's good for you. I'm serving you broccoli and brown rice. It happens to me. My kids all love broccoli and brown rice. So it's not But most families, you have to force them to eat broccoli and brown rice. How do we have that balance uh, teaching them what's good for them versus saying, I'm going to tell you what's good for you and you just stick with it. Eventually, they could rebel. Are we so funny? Because so much of it is about the example that we set as parents and our relationship to healthy food. It's anything else. It's like our behavior speaks volumes to our kids. It's not about what we say. In any area of parenting, it's not about what we say. And it's funny because my kids' friends, Dafka, come to me for my food. Because healthy food, we have converted so many people. What I would love to do. But what age? 17, 18, 19. They're not coming at 10-year-old and saying, Tara, give me your food. That's it. They're all ages, really. You know what, Matana? You're going to come to me for You're going to come to me first. We make the food in my house. And people always joke with my kids, oh, you must have no candy in the house. We have a whole candy cabinet. Right. I'm all about balance. I am yeah. not about, I'm not about being Show me your cereal box. Show me your cereal draw. I'm sure there's no fruity pebbles in there. No, for Shabbos, there is. My daughter went to somebody, went away for Shabbos and I was like, she came back and I said, how is the food? And she's, Ema, I'm really spoiled. I'm just really spoiled. And it's just because there's healthy food can be so delicious. It's like, maybe what we need to do is we need to do a cooking demo. Yeah, we should. We definitely should. No, I I definitely believe that healthy food is delicious and I make it all the time, but I also love the unhealthy food as well. Like I love a deep fried chicken. I love it. But the truth is, Atara, as much as I ask anybody in my family, what does mommy love? Give me a fresh roast chicken breast. Oh, that is my favorite food. That favorite. That's not what I expected. Yeah. My favorite food. Give it to me every single night of the week. Wow. Give me that. Yeah. 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 With mashed potatoes. Right mashed night. potatoes. Anyway, Atara, I need a, right. you needed to go. There's so much that we can speak about, but I, so much. first of all, follow Atara. What are, where can people find you? On Facebook, two places under Atara Weisberger and under Tribe Health and Wellness Coaching. Um, also on LinkedIn under my name also. And I'm not on Twitter, but I am on, on Instagram at Tribe Coaching or also under my name under at Atara Weisberger. Thank you very much for Thanks. your awareness and uh, your transparency, your calming energy. If I could tell you how calm I feel now, you're so calming. I'm sure everybody tells you that you're just so calming. So your energy is inviting. Definitely. Thanks. Thank you very much for sharing your wisdom, you. your experience, your knowledge. And I'm sure we're going to have you again to right. deep dive into the next topic of how can Amazing. we be leaders of our families in the right way, in the healthy mindset and the healthy foods, how we show up, as you said, role modeling. Beautiful. I'm ready. Thank you, everyone. Next Thanks time. so much, everybody. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. 
So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. You can access thousands of therapists one click away. Go check out BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Get 10% off your first month. Start your wellness now.